There's crispy. And then there's crispy. Err. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy. Err. Welcome to HBCU 468, brought to you by ESPN's The Undefeated. This weekly podcast looks at life inside and outside of sports from the unique perspective of the Roden Fellows, handpicked students from six historically black colleges and universities. They're young, they're smart, and they are living one of the most unique experiences in American higher education. I'm Bill Roden, and here are this week's Roden Fellows. I'm Kyla Wright from Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia. Hello, everybody. This is Bill Roden, and I'm coming to you from New York, New York. So nice they had to name it twice in Midtown. Uh, but before we get into the show, I want to introduce you to Jamal Murphy, who is in the ESPN studio today. Great to be here, Bill. Uh, it was a huge week in sports. Colin Kaepernick's lawyer says that he thinks he's going to be signed soon. Now, I don't know that I'm that optimistic, but if it does happen, I want him to be a Jet, a Raider, <laughs> a Raven, even a, what, Houston? Houston Texans. Houston Texans. That'd be nice. Anything. Uh, better than Tom Savage. Yeah, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, no shade to Tom Savage. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, anyway. Um, and then what else? Uh, the Houston Astros are world champions. I was in Los Angeles uh, Wednesday for a very anticlimactic, lackluster Game 7. But, you know, 106 million viewers tuned in to watch the entire series, which was very good. I, I would have been a lot more excited if the Yankees would have made it. Not because I like the Yankees necessarily, but it's market share and it's local. It's Yankee Stadium is a 10-minute walk from where I live. But anyway, Houston Houston deserves to, to, to won the title, and uh, congratulations, Astros. Our producer, Aaron, wrote that in. I had to forcibly see it say that. Uh, and as you know, I have thoughts about the Darvish-Guriel situation. We'll address that at the end. But the big news last Saturday was the 125th anniversary of the very first HBCU football game. The place was Salisbury, North Carolina, and the teams were Johnson C. Smith University, called Biddle University back in the day, and no, I was not there covering it. Uh, and Livingstone College, uh, Johnson C. Smith won the game 5-0. to zero. High scoring. Saturday marked the annual matchup between the two schools, and it's called the Commemorative Classic. And they met at Alumni Stadium at Livingstone College. Uh, the Central Intercollegiate Athletic Association, or CIAA as I call it, is the oldest black college athletic conference in the United States. And they designed the logo. Today we have a really, really special, special guest. I had the uh, pleasure and honor to meet her earlier this summer. Uh, Suzette McQueen is a senior associate commissioner of external operations and strategic marketing uh, to talk more about the commemorative classic and what we should look for from the CIAA. Uh, Suzette, thank you for being so patient for that long introduction. (laughs) But thank you so, 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 so much uh, for being on the show, Suzette. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so let, let's get right into it. What what does this uh, commemorative classic mean to the CIAA, Suzette? It's a huge opportunity uh, to, to showcase the CIAA and its member institutions, to think that this is the birthplace of black college football. It's really incredible to think those two schools' founding members 
of the CIAA um, are able to still celebrate this accomplishment this year. So it's an exciting time. I'm glad that I started here at the CIAA in time to be able to help celebrate this event. I'm a huge history buff. I mm. love the idea of looking mm. at the old pictures and mm. seeing what it must have been like mm. and you know, how heavy the uniforms must have been and how cold it was. Right. I mean, it's just amazing to me to think about it. And so to be able to celebrate that this year is really exciting. Yeah, actually, a Roden fellow, uh, Donovan Dooley, uh, who's at North Carolina A&T, wrote about the game. And he, yeah. he said that uh, Livingston College football head coach Daryl Williams said that it's important that players understand more than just how to simply how to play the game. They, they really know, need to know the historical background. And I wonder, I mean, I know that you're a history buff and you love that. So why is it important that the players and all of us really, I mean, I went to Morgan. Why, why, does, why is that important that we know the history, uh, uh, the, the historical background of the game? You know, it's interesting. I, I think about my kids, you know, they love YouTube now and watching all the different memes and the videos. And a lot of the songs on there are sampled off of songs that I grew up on. I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't new. Right. Like, you guys have to understand that there was something that happened before you got here, and you need to understand. So we'll play the whole song from back, you know, uh, Tribe Called Quest or whatever it is. Right. And we want them to understand that this isn't new. You are enjoying something that happened for other people, and you're able to take advantage of that now. And I think the same thing happens with athletics. I mean, everyone has, you know, dry fit uniforms and all this special equipment, and you have training table, and you have uh, nutritionists, and all these different people helping you be successful. Can you imagine what it was like? These guys mm. were just going to class, mm. and now they, they're putting on uniforms, and they're, they're doing something that no one else had done before. And, to, and I just think we take for granted where we are today, how difficult it must have been back then to put on a football game, mm. but how rewarding it was to try to take yourself out of the day-to-day -day life that they were probably living in and just get on the field and just compete, you mm. know, and to feel like you're, you're equal with the people on the field. Uh, sp speaking of which, what's, what about black college football? I mean, you, you got black athletes populating University of Alabama. I mean, almost every major college, uh, if mm -hmm. you look at it on Saturdays, like HBCUs. But, yeah. but, but why is this mm -hmm. significant? Why? What is the continuing significance of HBCU football? I mean, I think there's a pride there, you know, and I think the experience at an HBCU football game is totally different. I mean, I, I tend to a large historically white institution. Uh, I can tell you that the games are not the same. Uh, <laughs> you might have a lot of people there and, and a lot of fans, but the experience is just different. It's just it feels like you're in a family environment and people there appreciate you a, a lot more for the whole person, not just what you're doing on the field. It's just the idea that the pride behind the fact that our conference has those two schools in them that started it all. Mm. And here we are today. Mm. It's really, it's really something special. Uh, you know, I, I played at Morgan back in the mm -hmm. day when Morgan was still in the CIAA. And then mm -hmm. I think my junior year, they went to the MEAC, but what's the difference? You've got the MEAC, the MEAC, mm -hmm. Uh, the SWAC, the CIAA. How, how do the other three conferences distinctive? Well, I don't think this, you know, the CIAA you know, is known more so for being a basketball conference, where some other, the other conferences might have more of a current football powerhouse or just have more um, competitive football than perhaps might be associated with the CIAA. But we've been having a great year. Mm. Three of our teams are regionally ranked this year. Mm. Unfortunately, it's not the two teams that are playing tomorrow for the <laughs> Commemorative Classic, unfortunately. But mm. the fact that we have, we've been having a great season, we have two athletes that are regionally ranked in the top five in mm. almost several different scoring categories. One athlete from Virginia State, I think he was a Division One transfer who's in now, and he's just having a great season. I think the idea that we have such quality coming out of the HBCU programs that are going on to, to do great things after they leave our institutions is a true testament to what we have to offer. And, and hopefully more and more 
students are, are considering that as they think about where they want to go to school to be appreciated and to have an opportunity to shine on the field and to get a quality education that they'll consider one of the one of the HBCU schools. Yeah, let, let me ask you. Now, you're from uh, Long Island, New York. Mm-hmm. So coming out of high school, you, you know, you you went to the University of Michigan. I don't. I, I didn't say you chose not to go to HBCU, but why did you uh, end up not going to uh, an HBCU? I, I didn't mean I to think, ask. I know, didn't mean to ask it like that. Why didn't you go? Right. No. I um, growing up in the late '80s, I knew of Howard because I knew Howard Homecoming. That's what I knew, <laughs> and I had heard of Morgan State as an athlete, a, a track athlete. I was recruited to go to Michigan, mm. but my dad put himself through school at Brooklyn College. He grew up mm. in New York, and my mom didn't go to college, mm. so I didn't have a, a rich history of family members. I've talked to so many people in the CIAA who said my grandparents went to you know, Bowie, or my mom and dad went to Virginia State. I didn't have that experience. You know, my father was the first one to go to college Mm -hmm. in uh, his family, and my mom didn't go. So I didn't have that background of saying, I'm going to be a legacy at one of these HBCU schools. Had I had the opportunity to do it over again, I certainly would have at least visited some campuses and talked to people and learned more about it, but it wasn't even something that that came up. Yeah, I I can back that up also. I mean, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, Uh, went to high school in Brooklyn, never really considered an HBCU I just happened to end up at North Carolina A&T because I went to a small uh, liberal arts college, Guilford College first, mm-hmm. and was in Greensboro and, you know, had a lot of friends that went to A&T. So that's where I ended up transferring and graduating from. But definitely growing up in New York City, you don't really you don't really hear about that experience. Uh, our, our guest is uh, Suzette McQueen. She's a senior associate commissioner of external operations and strategic marketing. Uh, that's a hell of a long title. What do you What do you do? What do you do? I mean, what is What is that? Because particularly, you know, they make they make you do every single one of those titles. You know, (laughs) senior associate, long day, commissioner external, long day, strategic, long day. I mean, anything externally focused for the conference, you know, I, I deal mostly with uh, PR and marketing. So it's a lot of fun. So that before, before I let you go, and this kind of gets mm-hmm. back to what I was asking you about not mm-hmm. going right into uh, to an HBCU. I mean, re- realistically, listen, I, I've, you know, I've been covering sports for like 40-something years. And, you know, I think, you know, Morgan and all that. And then I go on all these campuses. You know, I go to Notre mm-hmm. Dame and, and, and mm-hmm. you know, Ohio State, Michigan. I said, you know. A, a football player or a highly recruited black football really has to have a, a, a very special social consciousness mm-hmm. to say, you know what, I'm not, I'm still going to A&T or I'm still going to – I mean, you really have to mm-hmm. – I mean, it's almost impossible. It doesn't to, exist, really, yeah. at this point. Yeah, it, it I mean, does For a big-time player. Yeah, I mean, you, mm-hmm. you know, you're not, not saying it never could, but, it, right. you, you know, you just re- – so what's the, the, what's the special niche – that HBCUs have? And I guess the, the large question, where do you fit in? And what's the challenges? What challenges yeah. have, have you found in, in being in the CIAA and, you know, kind of getting your niche audience? What What is that niche audience? What's the niche? Students are obviously more savvy than they, you know, in past years. When I went to school, it was just like, okay, here's who's recruiting you. Here's who's offering you dollars. And, you know, the name Michigan sounds impressive. And so you get caught up in that. I think kids are more savvy now. They have a lot of opportunities to research schools and online and, and through friends and, and Facebook pages and stuff like that. And, and you probably have seen the, the news obviously that HBCUs are seeing a resurgence. Most of our campuses have had 20%, 30%, 40% increases in freshman enrollment over the last couple of years. And I think students are starting to understand that they want to be in an environment where they're not having to worry about someone leaving a a note on their door. I mean, that mm. happened to me in Michigan, not me personally, right. but when I was a student there, there were racial issues on campus then 
you know, we're fighting to get Martin Luther King Day as a holiday mm-hmm. when I was in school. But, like, the fact that you don't have to worry about the aggression that happens on a, on a predominantly white campus, I think a lot of students are starting to really consider whether it's worth it to go to a place where you have to constantly feel like you're on edge instead of going to a place where you have an opportunity to, to learn and grow without that extra stress over your head. It's a very contentious time right now in the country. Mm-hmm. And I think more and more students are realizing that they have an opportunity at HBCU. Now, I, I believe, was it Cam Newton's brother? Who's at yeah, Howard? Yeah, Howard, yeah. You, you just need a couple kids who make that decision. You have a couple kids who are, who are highly, and I don't think he was highly recruited, but if you get a couple of highly recruited kids that make a decision to go to an HBCU, I mean, that could literally yeah, start to change things, change you know? Everything. But um, I think kids are just more savvy and starting to think about what kind of experience they want on a campus. Do they want to fight every day about who they are, or do they want to be able to go to school and get an education? Yeah. You know, yeah. in fact, I just saw Morgan um, um, Michelle Stevens, mm-hmm. I think, well, was an Olympian. She was in 92, mm-hmm. Olympics 96. So you know, the bottom line is And Quinera Hayes came out of Livingstone. So, you know, you got we have quite a few. Yeah, so, it, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely. Yeah, Tariq Cohen is tearing yeah. up uh, from uh, yeah. from A and T. I know you've got you've got to run, uh, Suzette. Yeah. Uh, but I, I really, 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 really appreciate you for coming on the show, and we'll we'll, we'll get you back during the CIAA tournament. <laughs> well, I would love that, and uh, but yeah, if you get a chance to just check out social media, we have hashtag HBCU125. Anybody wants to post about HBCU football, um, we encourage you to do that. Yeah, and, and look forward to having you. You know, have you come back? Thank you so much. You guys take care. Thanks for having me. Take care, Thank now. you. We're going to take a little short break, and when we come back, we'll discuss what's hot and what's not in black television and film. That's right. We're going to go there. <laughs> so stay tuned, everybody. We'll be right back. If you're just now tuning in, you're listening to HBCU 468, The Sound of Soul, this Roden Fellows podcast. I'm Bill Roden, and I'm here with my co-host, uh, Kyla Wright and Jamal Murphy. Paul Holston from Howard is off today. And we're also joined by the undefeated, the great Kelly Carter. Uh, she's the senior culture writer for The Undefeated. And she's also worked with MTV News. Ebony, my alma mater, uh, Jet, and the Detroit Free Press. And she's appeared on TV One, CNN, and E. So we're going to switch gears from the CIAA to black television and film. Uh, in, mm. in my day, now, uh, the main television show, The Jeffersons, The Cosby mm. Show, A Different World, uh, Amos and Andy. Uh, <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> and I'm you, just you being lost, real. You lost me. Yeah, Amos, oh, you never watched Amos and Andy? This shows how brainwashed. <laughs> We used to run home to watch. This shows our brain works. We used to run home to watch Amos and Andy. <laughs> anyway, but today um, uh, they can turn to network, cable, and online services, uh, which offer a variety of shows like Blackish, Power. That's your show, Bill. Amy, watch your mouth. Uh, Insecure. Uh, and as a result, we're seeing different narratives about the black experience. First of all, uh, Kelly, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's really an honor and a pleasure to have you on. Well, what are the shows that, uh, Kelly, that you're really into? Blackish is just one of the best 
um, comedies in, in prime time right now. Mm-hmm. Kenya Barris is the creator of that show. He kind of came up with that concept with Anthony Anderson, who fronts the series, and Lawrence Fishburne, um, who also guest stars in the series, and they all serve as executive producers. And what I love about that show is that Kenya manages to find the funny and things that all of us are talking about at our dinner tables every night, mm. you know, from conversations about the N-word, when to use it, whether we should use it, how to use it, to um, the gun debate, to um, Black Lives Matter. Mm. You know, he's constantly finding ways to actually make us laugh, make us think, and in a lot of cases make us learn something. There was this fantastic Juneteenth episode um, that the show did this season that people are still talking about. Mm. And I feel like every time I watch an episode, I think, and that's what's going to win them the Emmy. Nope, Mm. nope. This episode is going to win on the Emmy, and I think it's that good. But on the other side of the coin, and this is not a black show, but it certainly is a black storyline, and it is the dominant storyline that is really grabbing at people, is NBC's This Is Us. Mm. It's in its season two, and it is without question – one of the best TV series of all time. And I can wow. I can kind of make that very declarative statement um, very easily. Wow. You know, Sterling Brown, um, who has won two Emmys now, mm. is on this series. And super long story short, he is a 30-something-year-old black man who was adopted a- as an infant into a white family. Mm. And you constantly see these issues of cross-cultural adoptions and really white parents, loving white parents, teaching him how to become a black man and how he kind of views the world as a black man who is currently married to a black woman with two black children and now a black foster child. Mm. It is just gut-wrenching, very well-written, and extremely well-acted. You know, back in the the 80s, uh, when a, A Different World and The Cosby Show were king, black folks were, you know, looking for positive and idealistic mm-hmm. TV shows to represent the experience. Do you think that's still the case? Yeah, I, I think that's the case now. But I think that this is the blackest TV has ever been. Mm. It has never been, you know, you've never seen as much diversity of blackness across um, network television and also in digital television than we've ever seen right now. You have the most amount of black showrunners, producers, storytellers, writers that are telling stories. We don't have to say, if we're going to have one show on the air, like in 1984, if we're going to have right. one show on the air that has a black family, then it's got to represent the best of us. But I think that we're in a space now where we can we can very comfortably have a show akin to the Cosby show and, and right now that show is blackish mm. and we can also have a show like Empire that probably reflects, you know, your cousin Mookie and Locked Up. And I really do have a cousin named Mookie Locked Up. You know, and then we can also have a show like um like Insecure and in some cases they're not solely classified as black shows, but maybe they're affronted by a black person, like Scandal. It's not a black show, but it is a black woman who's fronting the series. So you're going to get some injections of blackness and kind of what everyday black issues are. And I think that's okay. I'm wondering what you mean by a black show, or is there such a thing anymore? Because uh, like you said, TV in general is becoming more diverse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, When I say a black show, I truly am meaning a predominantly black cast. Mm. It's just really based off of 
who you see on camera, in front mm-hmm. of the camera. But at that point, right now, who's behind the camera is probably more important mm-hmm. in Hollywood because that's how you get to who gets to be in and, front of the camera, you know? And Kara, to, 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 that, to that end, I mean, I mean, white folks have always been able to kind of capitalize off of black labor, you know, or black, or black sensibilities. But my, my bottom line is that are black folks benefiting from this, you know, and, and power position? Um, you know, and the equivalent of athletics is that, you know, the teams are 80% black players, but everybody controls right. it are white, you know, the owners, the shareholders and all that. What, what, about, what about this? We're talking about this is the black golden age of black TV and blah, 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 blah. Sure. But are we benefiting in terms of power? Yeah, you know, it's happening slowly, slowly, but surely. I mean, you know, ABC, a black woman runs the network, which is amazing and fantastic for for both reasons, that you have a woman, you know, at at the front, you have a black woman at the front, but then you have Fox has a black executive who's in a position of power to do green lights Mm. for, for the dramas. So that's probably why we're seeing a lot of black dramas um, or a lot of dramas with predominantly black cast or or black actors in prominent positions getting greenlit. Now, the other networks need some work. But what is happening before we're getting to like an executive network with with the power to say yes is that there are a lot of black creatives behind the scenes who are who are doing work and getting and getting their work greenlit. You know, you have Lee Daniels, you have Shonda Rhimes, who you know soon will be leaving ABC to go to Netflix. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to see what she does over there. Mm-hmm. You have Mara Brock-Akeel and her husband, Salim Akeel. Um, they have a new show, uh, Black Lightning, coming in 2018. Um, you have Will Packer, who operates in both the film and the TV space. You have Cheo Hadari Coker, who has Luke Cage on Netflix, and so on. I mean, we've never seen this many black folks behind the scenes creating TV at the same time. It, it just doesn't happen. And off the top of my head, I mean, what, the, there are probably at least 10 black showrunners and show creators and executive producers. Probably more if I were actually to think about it and report about it. But it's a lot right now, and it's amazing. And it's taken a lot to get here, a lot. I mm-hmm. think you raise a great point. It, 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 it's been a long journey, um, but, you know, it's been a struggle. It's been a fight. And I think right. for this generation, you just you did not get to this point without a fight. And mm-hmm. so I hope you know we all you know remember that 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 that, yeah. that there's a struggle. Is there a film or anything that you won't watch or you won't review? <laughs> That's a great question. Unless I really have to for work, I'm gonna stay far away from horror films. Mm. I just value my sleep too much, yeah. and. I won't be able to if I watch that. But other than that, no, there's not necessarily a genre of film that I would stay away from. Eventually, I have to watch everything for a couple of reasons. I mean, A, because I want to be as informed, you know, when I'm talking about what should and shouldn't be in conversation um, during award season. But I also have a vote in a couple of different, you know, award programs and, and in associations. And so I, every day I come home, I'm getting different DVDs mm. sent to me um, of films that probably aren't even out yet. And in some cases, films that came out earlier in the year, just to refresh my memory if I haven't seen it in a couple of months, so that by the time I get the ballots, I know what I'm talking about. Mm. Well, I mean, yeah, this is, this is great stuff because I need more things to watch, definitely 
with black casts. You know, I watch Blackish, love that show. Bill loves, he's a big fan of Power. Oh, oh wait, wait, wait. Mm-hmm. I love Power. <laughs> love Power. Bill, Bill, he doesn't want anybody to know it, but he, he binge watches Power. Oh, man, gee. <laughs> it's a great show to binge watch. Yeah, it's very hard for me to go to sleep. I, I said, gee, I, I was like, do people actually live like, like this? I mean, it's really just, I mean, my favorite, I like The Crown. Do you, you, watch, you, you don't watch that stuff, do you? You know, do you no, know The Crown? I've never heard of that. No. And, no. Really? No way. Is it a black no show? No way. I, I haven't I haven't watched it, but see that's another show that I can binge watch Queen when I get like forty two hours to myself. Oh, okay. It's about Queen Elizabeth. So Miss Carter, like you talked about how um you don't watch horror movies, so how did you feel about Get Out? Because, you know, that was like a horror yeah. movie or horror as systematic racism or however, you know, it was put <laughs> in a lot of black people like my mom hated it. Because mm-hmm. she said she had nightmares after she watched it because she was really scared. But like mm-hmm. people look at it as a horror movie, and then people look at it as like the satire kind of how it was, how she sure. put it. So like you know, what's your opinion on Get Out? Like especially because it grossed what like two hundred fifty million dollars. So yeah, no, I thought Get Out was excellent. Um, I really liked it. I had to sleep with my door open a couple, <laughs> with my bedroom door open a couple of days. Uh, it scared the crap out of me, but racism scares the crap out of me too. And I mean, that's really what that film was about. You know, like I, I, I don't want to give away a spoiler, even though I'm sure most of your listeners by now have probably seen it. But to me, the real horror was in the last like 20 seconds of that film because it could have gone two different ways. And if it had gone mm-hmm. one way, then it was the horror that we live every day in headlines that we see almost every day in newspapers, magazines, and on websites. But I thought Get Out was fantastic. It sparked a lot of conversation, and it did far better than even the creators of that film expected it to do. I'm pretty sure they're going to start a campaign for for that film for award season. Like, I, I wouldn't be shocked if, not for the Oscars necessarily, but for a Golden Globe nomination, I just would not be shocked to see something like that. It was one of the best movies I've seen in a long time. Yes, Another just- film I think kind of changed the trajectory of black films was Girls Trip. Because at the same time when Girls Trip came out, the, I guess, counterpart or like the white movie, I hate to put it that way, Rough mm-hmm. Night came out at the same time as Girls Trip. And mm-hmm. Girls Trip grossed like 135, $136 million, while Rough Night only was like $47 million. So... Yeah, no, Girls Trip was that. it was great because again we we don't see I mean the last time you saw four black women front a comedy was never we don't see we don't yeah. see us doing films like that and, and getting roles like that mm. so it was amazing to see how well that film did and you know Will Packer will be the first to tell you uh, who is I should say. Uh, a proud Florida A&M University alum. I was so um, glad they went to uh, HBCU. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, that's, and that's why all the women were graduates of FAMU, because Will, Will definitely is always going to rep the alphas and rep FAMU in every film that he does. Um, you probably noticed that Kofi's character was clearly supposed to be an alpha, like it is because of Will Packer. But, and he produced that film. But, you know, he did not know if that film was going to even get made. You know, he had to... He, you know, I was at the um, at the premiere in Hollywood for it, and he kind of, you know, told us before, you know, he, he started the film up that nobody was trying to make this film at all, and it got made, and it solidified careers of some of the women who were in it, and it launched a career in a large way of mm-hmm. a relative newbie, and 
um, who is now having, you know, one of the best years ever out of anyone in Hollywood. Yeah, you know, Tiffany Haddish. And I think that um, we're going to see more people saying yes to films like that. Mm -hmm. And I think as long as there's box office support, we're going to keep getting movies like that. That's great. Before we let you go, uh, Kelly Carter of The Undefeated, uh, is there a black character that you have not seen but you like to see? You know, I would love to see more stories of black women getting produced. I think that Hidden Figures was such a great start last year. And again, a film that surprised a lot of people um, with how well it did because it was an untold story um, that really informed and taught us all about very brilliant young black women. I want to see more films like that. You know, I'm really inspired by a Harriet Tubman biopic finally happening. You know, thanks to Kerry Washington's husband, he is executive producer for that project. I know Viola Davis has been, you know, kind of tirelessly working on the Barbara Jordan biopic. I have no problem with any story that, you know, with telling stories that talk about a really ugly side of American history for black folks, because that is very much a part of our stories and our histories. So we need those stories out there too. And I, I, I want to, in tandem, I want to make sure that we also are throwing out there, you know, black romantic comedies and and biopics of black people just being brilliant. Like, I want to see more of those stories out there, too, because I think we need to be fed with those kinds of stories. Our guest has been the great Kelly Carter. She's a senior cultural writer for The Undefeated. Hey, Kelly, I know you got to run, but thank you. Well, this has been tremendous. I mean, we could listen to you for another hour. Um, (laughs) Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'll come anytime. No, no, it's it's a pleasure. Well, good. You you heard that. She's going to be back. (laughs) Hey, Kelly, you're, you're the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's all the time we have for the show today. But before we close out, I'll leave you with some thoughts to consider. The Major League Baseball season is over. The World Series is over. But in the typical fashion of the 21st century news cycle, we've moved on and forgotten how just two weeks ago, Yuli Gurriel made racist comments about the Dodgers' U Darvish. But this is one thing I won't forget. Major League Baseball's punishment for Gurriel was to suspend him for five games at the beginning of next season. In a 162-game season, that's the equivalent of putting a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. A friend of mine, who was an Asian-American producer, said she felt so angry at the Houston Astros and at Major League Baseball, she felt like it was election night all over again. She felt that racism had been given a pass. And she's right. Gurriel should have been suspended for at least one game during the World Series. So consider this. The World Series may have been a hit, but Major League Baseball struck out. Thanks for listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. This show is produced by Aaron Mathewson. Tony Chow and Martin Onabu are in the control room. Special thanks to David Cummings. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcasts as well as All Day. What are those? And Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast. And don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everybody.